All right, good morning, everybody. Um, Carol, do you have any like Christmas sharing announcements that you need to make? All right. It's not my first rodeo. I remember. It's about time. These are the uh, special request list. So if you want to look at it before you leave, it's right here. Blankets, okay. Absolutely. Who doesn't love a waffle? But they're right here by the sign up sheet. If you look at them, you forget that they will be up and posted on the weekend. Yeah, great. And one more thing. Yeah, let's yeah, one more. Let's do it is our initial setup time. Oh, yeah. I'm going into my, I know God will provide, but <laughs> it still makes me anxious when nobody signs up. So, if any of you have husbands, especially husbands, because we got to move all the Sunday school stuff out and move tables and other stuff. Actually, kids also help because they put their eggs and they love Right. So, and there's no school from 7 to 8.30, and I quit at 8.30 no matter what, because that's as long as we work. And so. Seems like a great time. Want to come? Please do. Yeah, bring your friends. Bring your friends. I'll put you to work. That's nice. Great. Awesome. Yeah, just go ahead and uh, look at the, it's a bulletin board. It is a bulletin board. I mean, no, those right here, and then, and then, and then, uh, yeah, going down the stairs for the rest of the three weeks, four weeks. How many weeks is it? Three weeks till the actual Christmas sharing. All right, um, we do. I we had so many prayer requests in chapel that I had to write on the back of my card, and I forgot to pray for some people. So we have to pray before we start. Um, but it's a great prayer request because it's a great segue into a variety of things. Beth uh, Couch has a magazine that uh, this Northern Illinois District, which is we're part of the Northern Illinois District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, and they have a little magazine, quarterly magazine, and we're in it. Pastor Chats is in it. So... It's also in an email, that's right. Uh, yeah. But anyways, there you go. There's uh, copies, extra copies downstairs in the mailroom, if you so choose to. Uh, they're in a, well, they, they were in a box in the mailroom, but maybe they're in a pile now. A ni- nice, neat, nice, neat pile. Yeah, by the portals of prayer. Okay. Anyways, uh, well, the reason why it's a great prayer request is because it's for mothers and children, and the article deals with children, and Beth just pointed it out to me this morning. The uh, other thing is, um, tonight is a family night for those who, anyone can come, actually. It's especially geared to those who might 
have a need or desire to read the Bible with their children. So, over the summer, I uh, did uh, quite a bit of reading on the ancient Near East and children. And there's two early church fathers, St. Jerome and St. John Christosom, who wrote at length about uh, child-rearing. A little ironic, because neither of them had children. But, um, and uh, St. John Chrysostom had a very nice little phrase about making athletes for, for Christ. They also liked, in terms of uh, rearing children in the faith, they also uh, spoke very nicely of parents are the sculptors and the children are the, the statues, making them beautiful for Christ. That was very, very nice imagery. Anyways, so one of them, though, is reading the Bible with your children. And I learned a lot about, yeah, I learned a lot of interesting things, things that actually disagreed with the way I thought about reading with my children. And so we have a family night tonight, and uh, we're going to kind of go over the uh, things I learned and practice it with our children and uh, eat pizza. Should be, it should be a fun night, and it, it, hopefully it's a, like a good refresher, too, for parents because, I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, with a lot of things in life, you know, I'm very gun-ho for a while, and then things get a little lackadaisical, and then I need a little refresher, get things going again. So um, it won't be very long. Starts, we should be done by 730 I can't remember. We start at 6.30, so we should be done by 8 o'clock, absolute latest. really depends on how long, well, how long it takes to eat, basically. That's always a, that's always a tough thing to anticipate. I, don't, I mean, sometimes kids are done eating, like, in two minutes. And other times you're like, hurry up, like, the, the food, you know? So it depends. It could be one of those nights. I know with confirmation kids, it's impossible to anticipate how long. We would go to McDonald's, you know, it's like, uh, you know, we like for a confirmation retreat, we'll be ordering. We've got this huge long line, and like the first person gets the food. By the time the last person gets their food, the first person's already done and saying, when are we leaving, Pastor? <laughs> and then other times, you know, it's like, like we got to, let's wrap this up. I'm not even done with my burrito. Can I take it with? No. That was this last time. Yeah, at Cordoba. A lot of half-eaten burritos. Okay, the prayer is for Amy and Jordan. They're, they're parents of the son, Albert. And uh, so we're going to pray for parents and expected children and health and salvation. So let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the giver of all good gifts, and we praise and thank you for the gift of children, most especially Albert, but all expected children, too. Send your Holy Spirit upon all expected mothers, enliven all expected fathers to lead the children in your footsteps, that they might raise the children in the faith, uh, helping them blossom into the children that you have created them to be, that they might proclaim your praises and live your life. 
for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, uh, we're going to finish Mark chapter 14. And as custom, we're going to watch a video of Max McLean and his interpretation. We're going to do all of Mark 14 rather than just starting at verse 26 where we uh, left off from last week. Okay. All right, so I, I, I made a handout. It's not much. It's just really the text and then a bunch of listings of... Old Testament passages, a lot of psalms. Um, okay, the reason why I did that. Well, first of all, any reaction to the um, interpretation? Remember, so the Gospel of Mark is written to tell this story, Jesus. And, you know, when we tell the story, we, we always interpret the story. And so... Max McLean has a certain way of interpreting the text, and he shows us his interpretation by the way he acts or his acting style. So, anything that popped out, Holly? Um, all the like, all the scene is really the done in the darkness. Right. Yep, and and Jesus says this right. I was in the temple every day teaching, and you did not arrest me. So they wait until nightfall to arrest Jesus. So that not only, you could say, well, that's because they don't want to riot. That's true. At the same time, though, it's symptomatic of how the Satan works. He works in the dark, not in the light. So, you know, so it makes sense that they are coming at night because we will find out eventually through the testimony of the chief priests, that they are, in fact, workers of darkness. They're, they're workers of Satan. Well, let's not wait. We'll, just, we'll, we'll know why that is. Because if you take a look at um, verse yeah, 61, <laughs> verse 61, where the, the, uh, uh, the high priest, not, well, chief priest, high priest, says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, I know it might be hard to remember, but the only people who have acknowledged Jesus to be the, Christ, the, the, son, of, the son of the Blessed is, is a code language for the Son of God because in, in Jewish circles they don't say the word God because it's too holy. So they'll, they'll say, well, I, you know, Hashem is the name. They say the Blessed uh, here. So that's the same as the Son of God. So are you the Christ, the Son of God? That is echoing only one other group in the gospel. Who, who's the one other group that confesses the same thing as the high priest? I want to take a stab? Demons. That's right. So, is this a true statement, though, of course? Yeah, it is a true statement. So, um, but in terms of the Gospel of Mark, the only, the only group that gets this is, are the demons. So the high priest asking this question reveals the fact that he's in league with Satan. All right. Now, of course, too, the reason why we also know that he's in the le- they're in league with Satan is because at the beginning of Mark, 
he goes to the wilderness, right? And faces 40 days of temptation and testing. And, uh, and, and uh, wait, Satan's going to wait for a, more, a different time again. And now, here's his time. Jesus is back in uh, on trial, being tested, and Satan's behind his testing. Exemplified in the high priest's questioning. So, the fact that it was in the dark in the video is, is really important. It's not just the time of day, like a literal historic understanding. It's also a uh, metaphorical understanding, too, of uh, Satan being a worker of darkness. Any, uh, anything else that stuck out in the video? Yeah, Leah. I thought that it was interesting to see, like, Jesus' English. Though. Right. And, and I know when you're reading the text, it's there, but it's almost helpful to see that, just because he's following through on God's plan and fulfilling it, right. he's still human. Like, he's saying, you know, the flesh is weak. I mean, it's, it's no fun to be walking toward your death. Right. Um, and the suffering, and, um, but that's what makes it greater, obviously, is that he knows different if he was like, oh, this is going to be great. And, you know, right. Walking towards it and become the king now and all that. It's just like, actually something very physical and a lot of stuff to go with it. And realize, like, if you're like, if you think you're falling, that's what's up. So it's not always pretty. It's not always pleasant. It doesn't always feel good. That's right. The, um, the, uh, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. His, uh, you know, when he cries out that anguish, um, uh, Max McLean, it, it, he's not necessarily only speaking of Peter, James, and John, but almost like he's, this is also for me too. Um, yeah, this is actually really important for us because in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is probably the most, I don't want to say that, he, he, his humanity is, is uh, on display the most. He's fully human, fully God, uh, as we confess in the creeds. But in the Gospel of Mark, it's, it, it's displayed in a very special way, unique way. Um, because, you know, even throughout the Gospels, he gives these three predictions of his death and resurrection. He knows the hour is coming. And yet, at the same time, he's still asking the Heavenly Father to make this cup pass from him. A cup that he's already accepted. So in the Lord's Supper, right, he's received the cup. He accepts it. He drinks of it. And so it's not as if this cup hasn't, like, it's already been kind of assigned to him. But that still doesn't mean he can still ask for it to be removed. Um, So that gives, then, a unique color to the prayers of the faithful. Because even though we know that our tribulations will be in front of us, it's still, a very, it's still faithful to ask for it to, to be passed, pass you. But when it's not, Jesus is also the guy who embodies how we go through the tribulations. And as Leah says, I mean, he's, he's the, the most extreme example of how we go through tribulations. Um, in Hebrews... Chapter five and, and chapter four, uh, they get, it gives a really great picture of. I think it's Hebrews chapter five verse seven. 
Jesus is uh, giving uh, prayers and petitions with great, great groans and tears. And in Hebrews, the, the, the verse is actually a, 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 a verb is not just a one-time deal. This is what he routinely does. And so in the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where we, in the Gospels, we kind of say this is a one-time deal. But in Hebrews, we actually find out this is, Jesus has been praised this way often with this great anguish and emotion uh, because he knows what's at stake. And, and um, okay, great. So, anything else from the video? Yeah, Jan. The portrayal of Peter right at the end mm-hmm. where, you know, you've got the cursing and swearing and right. Peter, the booster crow the second time. Yeah. Your dramatic pause. Right. That he puts into the uh, yep. You just have a tendency to just leave. Yeah, keep going, right? Yeah. And <laughs> it really makes you think, would we have been any different right. than Peter in the same situation? Right, so there's two trials going on, right? Jesus' trial and Peter's trial. And what's really important in the Gospel of Mark is that the first readers of the Gospel of Mark are, are basically in Peter's position and Jesus' position. And what is really hopeful about this is when Jesus, on the Mount of Olives, he says to them, you are going to scatter, but I will go before you into, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Okay. So this is like Abraham and Isaac in Genesis um, where he says to Abraham says to the servants, "You guys stay here and we'll come back." But of course, Abraham and Isaac are going to go to the Mount of Moriah, and Isaac's going to die. So Abraham has this paradoxical faith that even though Isaac's going to die, he's going to come back with them with him to the servants. Jesus is in the same way. Jesus says, you're all going to scatter, but I'm going to go before you in Galilee. Meaning, even though your denial will happen, I'm going to have the last word. Grace will have the last word in this whole situation. So now that characterizes these two trials that happen with Jesus and Peter. Jesus' trial is the one that exemplifies martyrdom, faithfulness to the end. Peter's trial exemplifies those who deny the faith. And in the early church, you have a whole group of people who are either going to die because they're Christians or they're going to live when they die. In fact, early Christians were called on to curse God and Christ in order to live. So one of the interesting things about the biblical text is translated here that Peter called curses upon himself. It very well could be translated, he called curses upon Christ. It actually, it's, it's, it could be written both ways. Either way, I mean, it doesn't, that's kind of a, doesn't matter, but it, the whole point is that, is that what happens in Peter's trial is reflective of what actually happens to early Christians 
in, in the early church, when they go on a trial for being Christians, deniers of the Roman uh, rulers and the Roman gods. They are rebellious. And of course, then that goes to Jesus' word when he says, am I leading a rebellion? The answer is no, he's not leading a, re- a rebellion. He's, this, this is not about political or worldly power. So, um, but the early Christians were viewed as um, rebels or revolutionaries because the way they understood the world was completely topsy-turvy. And that, of course, is understood in the trials of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus because as Jesus is humiliated, as he's sentenced to death, all that confirms who he is. Jesus never said in the Gospel of Mark, I will destroy this temple and rebuild it. You know, he says that in Gospel of John. He doesn't say that in Mark. Um, I mean, his actions confess this, right? We already know this from uh, Mark chapter 12 and Mark chapter 13 when he judges the temp- opposite of the temple. He judges the temple to be obsolete. And, and, and so, so that actually is tr- that's actually a true statement, but their testimony is false because he actually didn't say that in the Gospel of Mark. So what's brought up as charges to condemn him actually confirm him. <laughs> it's, it's a really, it's a paradoxical trial going on. So the farther he gets, the farther down he goes in terms of death or humiliation, as the reader, we all understand it being his exaltation and his um, vindication. All right, Krista. Um, at, first, at first I thought um, Jesus, who was healing uh, the sick, uh, could, could say, um, this is too, too much for me. Um, I take another route. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, um, and uh, that he really, really suffered. And, right. Yes. And then on the other end, I think that's just the same when you say um, the Christian should deny uh, Christ. And that's with the persecuted Christian. Right. It's just the same. Absolutely. I mean, this is a. Uh, this is a realistic story. You know, we are, so Peter never was really threatened with death, was he? All right? His greatest fear is embarrassment or being associated with Jesus. And so this is the interesting thing is that Jesus is the story of martyrdom. It's the one that we look to as a positive portrayal of those who confess the gospel, to death. Peter, I would say, is a uh, trial that we often face on a more kind of day-to-day level where people associate us with Jesus. I mean, that's the charge. Hey, you're with him, right? Oh, yeah, you're definitely with him. I can tell. You're a galleon. We kind of presume because Jesus is going to be executed, if Peter is found to be with him, he would also be executed. That's actually not in the Bible. That's not in the text. Okay? So there's, we, we just maybe project that meaning into the text because of later portrayals of what happens with uh, martyrs. But that's the, that's the story. That's the Jesus side of things. The Peter side of things is just the ones where we have to stay up every day. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm with him. 
I am with him. I'm with Jesus. And rather, so he tries to save embarrassment, but what actually happens, of course, he is, he ends up condemning himself. So little does he realize <laughs> he'd rather not be embarrassed, but by not being embarrassed, you condemn yourself. You're, you're, you're an apostate. What's also interesting in this is zealots, or the zealotism that happens in this story. Jesus is also judges the one who cuts the ear off. So you have two examples of how discipleship, you lose discipleship. One is the, the zealot who's going to say, Jesus is not going to suffer, and neither are we. We're going to fight back. Well, Jesus actually condemns that sort of behavior. And then on the, on the other side of that same coin is the one who denies him. Jesus also doesn't like that either. So what happens is, is you have this very unique understanding of confessing Christianity or the faith in Christ or your disciple, being a disciple of Jesus. It is the one that follows the, the way of sorrows, the, the, the one of suffering. So it's, it's a very, very... Uh, a powerful image in the Gospels because many of us don't, do not want to suffer. So either we're going to fight back and cut people's ears off. Well, it doesn't say in the Gospel of Mark. It was, um, how does it translate it here? They, does it say a certain one? That's a, uh, so in the gospel, and the reason why that's important, though, is because uh, that phrase is used twice. One of those, uh, one of those. okay. Um, yeah, it could be understood as like a, uh, so a young man followed him, too, is one of those. So you have this kind of phrase. It doesn't really matter who it is, because it could be you. Yeah, that, that's why Mark is also very powerful, is you have these generic terms, because you can fit yourself into them. Because if it's really just Peter, well, that, that's not me, Donna. It's not me. It's Peter's job. But if it's just you know one of them around him, then we can put ourselves in that position easier. You know, be a lot easier. Um, and that's why Mark does that too. Mark Mark does that a lot. So we might know some information from the other gospel stories, but in Mark, Mark's telling it in a very specific way because. He wants us to insert ourselves in the story to, 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 you know, to understand that we can be in these positions just as easy as anybody else. Yeah, the naked man. You've got to go through confirmation, man. Because uh, that, that has been one of the more popular confirmation verses. In fact, John, Jonathan uh, Ferrer. That was his, he wanted that to be the confirmation, his confirmation verse, I said, no, buddy. No one's going to get it. That'll be just you, you know, between you and me. So, uh, no, I, uh, so the naked young man is, a, it's, well, first of all, it's, it's the holy streaker. So I call him the holy streaker. Um, you know, of all the places where we don't like to insert ourselves in the story, it's probably this one, you know. We might even want to be 
Peter denying him three times before we want to run away naked. But um, so the, the naked young man. There's, no, well, there's a variety of interpretations, Leah. One is it's the gospel writer, Mark, because that was like an old way of signing your written text is by kind of stealthily putting yourself into the story. So the beloved, the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John, even, it's John, even though it actually doesn't say John, because that's his, you know, he writes himself into it. So that, that's, one, that's one interpretation. That's just from history. It's not in the, the actual text. It doesn't say that. But the young man uh, is wearing a linen, linen cloth. Linen is expensive, so it's probably a wealthy person. Um, but he serves two, two, uh, two examples of things. There's already been a, young, a, a person who's thrown off his clothes. Do you guys remember who that is? It's his cloak, though. Not his, all his clothes. The blind Bartimaeus man. Before Jesus goes into Jerusalem... Blind Bartimaeus is on the side of the road. Jesus says, come here. He throws off his cloak, and he follows Jesus along the way. Now we have the opposite, the foil. He throws off everything. What does he do? He runs away from Jesus. So you have this uh, kind of these two images of faithfulness and faithlessness. But there's more to that even, even than that. And I'm not saying that this guy is blind Bartimaeus. But you have this, this image of what it means to be a disciple and what the opposite of what that means. The, the, the young man, a, a young man, it, there's actually one word in the Greek, and there's another young man in the tomb. And, he, and he's actually wearing a, a white robe now. So the gospel writer, and, and so in Mark 16... You have another young man who is described by his clothing, but yet rather than being away from Jesus, is now sitting at the right hand, or Jesus' right hand. Well, he eventually ran away, though. Yeah, right. Yeah, so he's the last one mentioned, though. You're right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, that's, so that's really important to mention is that there is an increasing isolation of Jesus. And he's kind of the last guy. Sort of. Because then you have Peter, right, following at a distance. Which is actually a fulfillment of uh, Psalms. And then you also have the women at the cross who follow at a distance. It's the same, same language. So what this shows is that... Um, there's kind of levels of denial or levels of abandonment where you have this real human struggle with Peter who has fled, but yet he's still struggling with it. He, wants to be, he still wants to be close. But of course, ultimately, he, he fails. But he also repents. So you know that that's not the end of the story for him. So it's a real-life struggle described in the Gospel of Mark of those who confess Christ as, as their Lord and Savior. It's a struggle. 
So the young man, though, is uh, he? He's, I think he he serves a purpose of how, in order to sit at Christ's right hand in the resurrection, you have to let go of everything. You have to be. I mean, you have to be naked. You can't hang on to anything, including your desire to be close to Jesus. It is by grace through faith, not of works. So what happens is that. Now, there's nobody left except for Jesus. And Jesus now becomes the one guy who's going to die and rise again. So that's kind of the hopefulness of the story. Even though everyone, you know, fails in their discipleship, well, that's okay because Jesus is faithful. And it's not on your faithfulness that, that you are a disciple or that you get to heaven. It's on Jesus' faithfulness. So it's really the extre- it, it just takes everything to the extreme of how we don't claim any it rests on Christ and only Christ. Holly. Yeah, that's that's my theory too. The rich young man in the Gospel of Mark, chapter ten. Uh, this is the same guy. That's my theory. Well, so like he goes away sorrowful, and um, sorrowful, that's a real word. I mean, he's sad. So it's not like he's like, ah, I'm not going to do that. He's like, man, I really want to do that, but it's hard for me. I don't know if I can. And you have another rich young man. Uh, How do you know he's rich? Because he's wearing linen, fancy underwear, linen underwear. Because um, that's what it is. Is it just linen cloth? Is that what it says? I can't remember here. Yeah, linen cloth. It's uh, the, the, the is there's like a is a technical linen. The part of clothing you wear close to your skin. I think that's I think that's how it's a literal translation of it. So yeah, linen underwear. So we know we know this guy is is, is a wealthy person. So now the man who was told by Jesus to give up everything now has actually given up everything. He doesn't even have clothes yet. He doesn't even have clothes. He doesn't even have his self-respect anymore because he's failed. I mean, it is like, again, this extreme grace. This radical grace. Which is great because that provides a lot of hope. So the title of, of today's Bible study, I think I, write, I wrote um, Prayer, Trials, Denials, and then dot, 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 Hope. I mean, there's a lot of like sadness going on in this story. But underlining it is this Pope, because Jesus has already said that what's going to happen. So Jesus is acting as a, at a, as a prophet, and things that he has declared are now coming true. So while it seems like everything is crazy chaos, we stay close to Jesus because he's actually the one who's going to lead us through the chaos. Yeah. Um, right. 
Yeah, it sounds like a condemnation from Jesus, but in fact, it's a truth statement because Judas, yeah, he despairs to death. And we don't get that, uh, so in, um, in Matthew, we read that he hangs himself. It's a really gross scene where like his guts spill out. It's nasty. Um, so rather than depending upon the grace of God, he says, well, I, there's no other choice for me but to die. So he, he, he it's complete despair. Now we don't understand, we don't get that in Mark. We don't we don't know. It's untold. So from Mark's perspective, there's there's not there's always a chance for people. But that's the that would be a secondary story to Peter's primary story, yeah, of denial of what it means to deny. The um, so yeah, Judah. I mean, obviously from the gospel, other gospels, we know that Judas did not repent. But in Mark, we don't know that. Um, now, the other thing, too, that I was going to make mention of, and this is, goes back to that first page, and I just I copied a part of a, a figure 47 out of this uh, commentary because it was a lot easier to make the copy than to write all that down. Um, is that as Jesus... So Jesus keeps talking about the scriptures must be fulfilled. And he gives very specific times, but underlying all of this is stuff that's the, the things that have always been written in the Old Testament. So Jesus has a very powerful image for us: is that when you stay close to God's word and you let God's word tell your story, that will help you then create a lens in which to understand this chaos. Because even though this chaos is happening, it's not as if it's happening by itself. There is this underlying divine plan happening, this will of God happening. Now, Jesus, frankly, doesn't quite know it. I mean, he's kind of, I mean, in terms of his humanity, he's given that up, right? He's, he's uh, uh, who, you know, is equal with God, considers himself to be nothing. It's Philippians chapter 2. So he n- trusts this plan, even though he wants the cup to pass, not my will, but your will be done. And so he is confessing what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. In fact, Mark chapter 14 has a lot of the Lord's Prayer in it. Our Father who art in heaven, Abba Father, hallowed be thy name, his, his holy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We get that here. Give us this, our daily bread. That's the Lord's Supper. Um, lead us not into temptation. Jesus says that precisely to the disciples, that you need not be into temptation. And deliver us from the evil one. He, Satan is the tester, the uh, tempter. So, of course, he's, he's praying to be delivered. I mean, the, the, the Lord's Prayer is in the background of, of Mark chapter 14. So, this, so not only does he exemplify praying 
you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He actually has taught us the prayer that we use to confess, even though the world is, is going crazy, we acknowledge that God's will is working. And how do we know that? Well, because of Jesus. Mark chapter 13. Remember, when Jesus says, you know, it, uh, the sun is not going to work anymore and families are going to fall apart and governments are going to fall apart. He's, at his main, his, he's talking about how he's going to the cross. Because the cross is the ultimate sign that things are screwed up. Because the Holy One of God is being crucified. He's not supposed to be. I mean, that's not the proper response to God is to kill him. The proper response to God is to praise him and thank him and love him. But God's plan is not going to be thwarted by man's attempt. So it's not going to be thwarted by man's denial, by man's condemnation. So his grace and his will will have the last word. And that we see that in the Gospel of Mark. So that, of course, when all hell is breaking loose in our life, or when it seems like it's the end of the world, we look to Jesus, because he's already said that to us. And we're like, well, how are we going to go through the end of the world? Well, just like Jesus. It's... um. So Mark is, uh, gives us a really great example of Jesus that we see in the uh, first, um, Second Corinthians 13 when Paul prayed three times that this thorn would be removed from his flesh. And each time Jesus says to Paul, what? Does anyone know what that he says? What's that? My grace is sufficient because God's power is made perfect in weakness. Now, perfect means um, not idealized, but fulfilled, complete. So God's power is complete in human weakness. Not just our weakness, but Jesus' weakness on the cross. So this is the irony of Mark 14 and the trials of Jesus. They, all, the chief priests, and, and then we'll get the Gentiles next week in 15, they all think they're in charge. And we find, even though they, when they condemn Jesus, it just shows that God is in charge. I mean, it's just, it's so ironic because when they say, you, he, he said, I will destroy this temple, uh, temple made with human hands, that not only means like a people building a building, but that actually that means like an idol. Because an idol is, is a god made with human hands. So it's, it's two things, and that's why people are getting so mad. Not on, it's not only like, hey, I can destroy this and rebuild it in three days. Like, like he's some weirdo, like, you know. No one can do that. He's actually condemning the temple as an idol. So that, that, that's what, that's going on there. Even though he didn't say it, that's actually true. And then when the high priest says, 
are you the son of uh, are you the Christ the son of the blessed Jesus now Jesus actually really piles coals on his head because another way it could be translated is you have said I am in, in the way it's translated it says I am and you will it's really great because I think it's probably more faithful to this when Jesus would say you said I am meaning yeah that's right you said that <laughs> which I think is really funny like yeah you're speaking the truth which, of course, then that would be a big, big poke in the eyeball of the high priest, and that would make, that would make sense, him ripping his clothes apart. He'd be like, oh, that's not what I meant. But it's true. So one of the great things about this is that when, because I, I keep thinking about this in terms of what, when we pray for things and we ask God to solve our trials and tribulations, the Gospel of Mark provides a very different answer than what we often desire. When we ask for God to take away the cup, we forget that we've already received the cup. It's already something given to us in Holy Baptism and in the Lord's Supper. So when we ask for this cup of tribulation and trials to be removed, we still are submitting ourselves to God's will because we know this cup, we expect this cup, and if it happens, we know we will be vindicated because Christ has already promised us to be in Galilee, waiting for us to come in the resurrection. So, he could, in fact, take the cup away. But, in fact, he won't. Either way, God be good. Praise be to God. Um, Because either way, Christ is there for us, whether in the tribulation or, or, or... as the one to remove it. Um, yeah. Okay. The uh, uh, there's a lot of other things to talk about. You guys, any other questions? We only got like three more minutes, so I can keep talking about a few other I find interesting tidbits. Anybody, any questions or anything? I want to know if the disciples watched and prayed like Jesus told them to. Oh, yeah. What would have been, would something have been different for Peter? Well, yeah, this is a good question because um, many people have, have wondered, how in the world did they know he said, Abba, Father? So some people said that they probably did stay awake, but just not the whole time. Yeah. So, um, but, the, but the point, though, is, is that um, it's re- it, the, the story is telling the power of Christ in contrast to the to the failure of, of the human disciple and how the human disciple always has hope because Christ doesn't fall asleep. By the way, you know, Mark 13, right? Jesus says, stay awake. You don't want to miss, the, you know, the, the master of the house is going to go away. And when he comes back, you don't want to be asleep. Well, that, that's fulfilled in Mark 14. Um, so everything he says in Mark 13 is fulfilled in 14 and 15 about the end of the world. Because in, in, um, 
in Jesus' death, the end of the world happens. The end of the old age happens. And in the resurrection, the beginning of the new age begins. So um, we, we don't want to forget that. So um, what was the other? Well, there, yeah, any other questions? I mean, there's a, that's a long chapter, right? I mean, it's like, what, 50 verses. So, again, we're just trying to be done by Christmas so we can start a new thing. So, so next week we're going to do half of 15. Um, oh, no, we're not meeting next week. Sorry, not meeting next week. So that will be the 30th. Next time, November 30th. And hopefully it will be 50 degrees. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.